Exodus chapter 6, beginning to read at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let my people go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan when they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I had heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I'll bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Our second reading is from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning to read at verse 19. Uh, you can find it on page 1039. Hebrews 10, verse 19. A call to persevere in faith. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord.
Uh, in Australia, on average, 1.6 million people will go to church on a Sunday. It's about the same amount of people who participate in organised sport on a weekend. 1.6 million people. If you were to ask those people, what are you doing? What, what do you think is happening when you go to church? What is church? You'll get a vast array of responses. You'll get people say, well, it is my place of worship. Others will say, it's my family. Some will say, it's an institution, been around for many years. Others say, it's my community. Some will talk about hypocrites. Some will say, it's a place for the hurting. Some might say, it's a helpful place to learn about God. And others say, it's a holy place. Different responses. If you were to ask people outside the church, what is church, there'll be a lot of confusion. Because one, on one hand, they'll say, well, I think it's a holy place, and yet, what's with all the child abuse and the Royal Commission stuff? They'll say, I think there's one church, but there's all these different types of churches, all these denominations. They'll say, well, the church has been around for a while, but it seems to be dying. I remember telling one person I was going to be a minister of a church, and they said, isn't that just a dying business? It's like, it's like going to be a manager of a video rental store. Not much future, right? And if I was to ask you, what is church? What definition would you give? I presume a lot of you will say something like this. When two or three are gathered in Jesus' name. It's a good response. Quoting Jesus. It's a good start. But if that's where we end... It's a bit malnourished, isn't it? Because all we're left is, is someone going up to someone else saying, hey, you're a Christian? Yep. You're alive? Yep. Cool. This is church. It's got to be more than that, doesn't it? We're going to spend the next 10 weeks looking at what we're doing right now, church. Uh, one of the uh, prominent theologians of our era, John Stott, said, was asked, rather, what is the most misunderstood topic in the whole Bible? He didn't say the Trinity. He didn't say the cross. He didn't say heaven and hell. You know what he said? The church. And so it is our normal practice here at church to go through book by book of the Bible. The reason why we do that is so we don't skip over things that we don't like. We want all of God's Word to speak to us. But every now and then it's important to step back and to see what does the whole Bible say about a particular topic? Genesis to Revelation. What does all of God's words say about something? And we're going to have a look at what, not what we think the church should be, but what does God say the church is? What's his plan? What's his purpose for what we do as we gather? Uh, you'll have this book on your seat, True Community, Why We Need the Church. Uh, in it is uh, opportunities for threat notes, if you're that way inclined, page 8. Is where we're at today. There's discussion groups for connect, uh, discussion questions for connect groups, daily Bible reading, song of the week, that kind of thing. Bring it with you each week. It's got a lot of content in there. But today we're going to look really at the first question Why do we need church? So to that end, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask as we come to this series here at church, as we look at the church, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, and there are going to be times where we're going to be challenged to rethink 
what we do and what we believe. There's going to be times when we're encouraged by your word that we're actually on the right track. There's going to be times, Lord God, that are sensitive times where we share the hurt, the times Christians have let us down, and times in which we celebrate the way which your spirit has worked in us where Christians have been like you, Lord Jesus. And so we ask that you will guide us, prompt us, empower us to be the people you want us to be. Amen. In 2011, in July, Natalie Wood was found dead in her home. It's a picture of her. It's a picture of her on the screen. Now, that would not be worth reporting on, except for the fact that she had been dead in her house for eight years, and no one noticed. The title in the paper was, The Woman Sydney Forgot. She was not missed by relatives, by the council, by Centrelink, by utilities companies. One of her neighbours said, I didn't even know she existed. I always thought the house was derelict. Another neighbour said, it is terribly sad that she has died and was there for so long. I'm not surprised though, people lead such busy lives. It's a sad story, isn't it? Loneliness is a terrible thing. And if we're honest, deep down, it's what we all fear, isn't it? Being alone, being isolated, being disconnected. And ironically, right, we live in a time where there are more people than ever before. And we are more connected to people than ever before. And yet, we are lonelier than ever before. Earlier this year in the UK, the government appointed a minister for loneliness. A politician to tackle the growing issue of isolation in the UK. And one article in the paper said this, loneliness is proven to be worse for your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. We have this need for connection, don't we? We want to belong. It's almost as basic a need as food and water. And you'll notice in our society, the word community is a bit of a buzzword, right? So you join a group of people, and it, let's say you're interested in stamps. So all three of us are interested in stamps. You don't join just a club. You join a stamp community. If you're interested in Labradors, you love Labradors, you join a Labrador lover community. If you're interested in organic garden, you join an organic garden community. Because we just don't want to share interests. We want to be known and know and others people to... Sorry, we want to be known and know other people. We crave it. We need it. And long before it was a buzzword... Long before politicians were appointed to tackle the problem, it was actually God's idea for community from the very beginning. That the church is God's solution to isolation and loneliness. Now you might be thinking, I thought the church was a man-made institution as a means of power and influence. Step back and have a look at the Bible and you will see that it was God's plan that God wanted to create a perfect, loving community gathered around him from the very beginning. What I want to do is take you on that journey, take you on that story 
of the Bible to see how was God's idea. So let's start at the beginning. God created mankind. But at first, he just created one person, Adam. And he told Adam, work, steward, look after this world. And Adam seems quite capable of it. There he is, he's working the land, he's doing basic science, taxonomy, classifying the animals. He seems more than capable. But God sees this as a problem. See, in Genesis 2 verse 18, it says this, it's on the screen. It is not good for the man to be alone. Those words don't come from Adam. They come from God. See, Adam's problem is that he is perfectly fine by himself. And God says, this is not right. So what does God do? He takes part of Adam and gives him a gift. The gift of another person. The gift of working with someone. The gift of a relationship. And Adam moves from independence to dependence when he meets Eve. In creating man and woman... God strips away our autonomy for something greater. And you know what that is? Community. One another. And you know why God does it? Because he wants you to enjoy something that he has been experiencing for all eternity. Because God is not just one God, one person. No, no, he is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father. God is in community and has been and will always be. And he wants you to enjoy that. And being made in his image means that you are like it. You are relational. You've seen the movie, presumably, or a lot of you have, of a Castaway. Tom Hanks finds himself on an island by himself. What does he do? He turns a volleyball into a person. Wilson. And throughout the movie, he's talking to Wilson. He's arguing with Wilson. He's laughing with Wilson. And at the end of the film, somehow Wilson managed to get off the boat, but it's too late. And you see this scene of Wilson floating away and Tom Hanks' character going, Wilson! And he's crying. And you're watching the film and you're crying. And then you realize, it's just a volleyball. But, but that's, that's how relationally loaded we are. If we don't find people, we'll make people. We need other people. But God, in creating community, he didn't just create a community for one another. He created a community with God. Because there, Adam and Eve are in the garden, walking with God. That they are in perfect relationship with him. With God at the center. That, at the beginning, was true community. And then everything was ruined. Humanity rejects God, and Adam and Eve kick God out of the center, and they step into it. And because sin destroys community, God can't be a part of it anymore. And like an adulterous spouse is kicked out of the home for breaking trust, so God kicks Adam and Eve out for breaking trust. And on that day, loneliness was born. It never existed before then. It was never felt before then. But sin destroys our relationship with God and with one another. It erodes trust It breaks down love. It makes us suspicious of others. And so we isolate ourselves. 
But the story doesn't end there. God goes to great lengths to regain that true community, to regain a perfect, safe community around him. And you see it when he approaches an Iraqi pensioner, Abraham. And he says to Abraham, through you I'm going to make a great people. And this people grow and grow. And they become enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. So God, if he wants his people, needs to rescue them. In Exodus 6, that was read out to us before, it says this. God speaking to Moses, I am the Lord and will bring you out under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. In order for God to have a people, he needs to rescue them. He needs to free them. And he does it. You see, as in, and he does it individually, And as a group, individually, he gets people to put the blood over their door frame. So it was the angel of death goes through, it passes over them and they're spared. But he does it corporately as God's people walk through the Red Sea, washed, cleansed as they entered Mount Sinai. And there God's rescued, redeemed people gather around God and his word. And they're a community with God at the center. But sin is not too far behind. And so begins the great, uh, the continuing tension in the rest of the Bible. As God seeks to pull people together, but humanity seeks to pull away. As God seeks community and holiness, God's people seek isolation and sin. As God thinks fellowship is best, God's people think, no, I can do it on my own. And so God warns time and time again through prophet after prophet after prophet, but falls on deaf ears. So God must come himself personally. The first time really the word church is used is on Jesus' lips. It's ecclesia in the Greek. It means gathering. And in Matthew 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my gathering. That God calls a people to himself. But this people, us, we need to be rescued, not from Pharaoh, but from sin. And you know how Jesus rescues us? In Ephesians 25, it says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That Jesus gives his life for his church. That sin destroyed, that sin that destroyed our relationship with God and one another, that wedge that was between us and God, Jesus removes it on the cross permanently. So that you can approach God, be in relationship with him, and confident that you are. And relationship with one another. Do you know how many times in the Bible, in the New Testament, I should say, Christians are referred to as sinners? Just once. And really, it's probably referring to Paul then. Such a work that Jesus did on us in removing and dealing with sin, that when he sees you, he doesn't see a sinner. That he sees 
someone who's saved, a saint, forgiven, washed clean. You might be thinking, well, does that mean Christians don't sin? No, no, no. But it is who we are now because of what Jesus has done. And it is who we will be for all eternity. In Revelation 7, it says this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is like the garden, but it's better. A diverse community, all wearing white, which means symbolizes there is no sin and there's no chance of sin. There's no chance of stuffing it up. This is the future for those in Christ. And we are there gathered around who? Jesus. A saved people for all eternity. A true community. See, God's plan from the very beginning was to create a true community. And our sin destroyed it all. And we sought loneliness. And the most lonely place imaginable is hell. But God, in his grace and mercy, sought to restore it and to bring together true, perfect, safe community. See, we might say we value community, but God says it is worth dying for. Let me give you three truths about the church. Three things you need to know. The first is this. You can't have Jesus without the church. You might be the kind of person who says, I I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. And behind this is often people's hurt, people's genuine hurt at Christians, at Christian organizations, at pastors who have profoundly hurt you. And we're going to look at that when it comes to, is there a perfect church in about four weeks' time? But let me say this. You can't love Jesus without loving the church. Paul Dale, our senior minister, when he met Rach, he found out pretty quickly that Rach had a son, little Sam. Now, Rach shares that she was reluctant to introduce Paul to Sam because she knew if, if she was to get married, her husband would need to love not only her, but Sam. And the reason why, well, one of the reasons why Rachel married Paul was because Paul not only loved her, but willingly loved Sam as his own son. When it comes to Jesus, Jesus is saying, you can't love me without loving my people. And in loving my people, You're actually loving me. The second thing is this. The church is the most diverse community on the planet. In every community, there is one thing that unifies them. So if you're part of a marathon club, you're better like running. If you're part of a mother's group, it helps to have a child. There's always one thing that unifies any group, right? The thing that unifies a church community is Jesus. Is individuals who said, I have been saved by Jesus. 
I've been forgiven by Jesus and I want to obey him in every area of my life. It has nothing to do with your age, your stage, your pay packet, what you're able or unable to do, what you look like, who you're attracted to, who your, your race. A healthy church is a group of diverse people who have one thing in common, Jesus Christ. A church stops being a church when Jesus is not at the center and something else is. That's why it says in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, nor male and female, for all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me give you examples of this. We take, for example, the disciples. You've got Peter, who was loud and obnoxious, next to John, who is gentle and contemplative. Two different types of personalities. You've got Simon, who was an anti-government zealot, next to Matthew, who was a government-employed tax collector. Different political views. You've got in Acts 16, uh, Lydia, who's basically a CEO, a very influential woman. She joins the church. Next to a female slave who's been released from oppression, she joins the church. Next to a, a Roman guard, a prison guard, he joins the church and his family. Different demographics. In 1 Corinthians 6, you've got people from all sorts of backgrounds. Backgrounds including those who are adulterers, sexually promiscuous, people who are gay, thieves, greedy, alcoholic. And you know what they have in common? 1 Corinthians 6 says, we were washed We were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. The church is not a natural bunch of friends. But we're here together simply because Jesus has saved us. When you you become a Christian, you join the most random of communities. And you look around and you think, a bit odd, isn't it? But the thing that matters most out of everything is that we're children of God and we are his people. You take a look at Church by the Bridge and there's about, my account, about 40 different cultural backgrounds at this church. There are people in this church who live in housing commission and others who live on mansions on the water. People who are opposite, same, and bisexually attracted. People who are employed, people who are unemployed. You've got people here who are single, who are married, who are divorced, who are widowed. People who vote for Labor and Liberal, the Greens and the Christian Democrats. You've got people here, uh, the youngest was born just a week ago and the oldest is knocking on 90. People who are interested in sailing, in rugby, in knitting and watching The Bachelor. You will not find a more diverse community on the Lower North Shore than the local church. Jesus has saved you to be part of a community of very different types of people. And that means it's actually going to be hard because it is very easy to hang out with people who are like you. People who look like you, who think the same. But God in his providence has brought us together from different backgrounds to say you are to do life 
together. And that is good. The third and final thing is this. You can be a Christian without going to church. But you cannot grow as a Christian without church. If you remember the thief on the cross, moments before his death, he became a Christian. He never met with any other single Christian in his life. He died. And yet Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Getting into heaven has nothing to do with how many church gatherings you attended. I hope you know that. It only comes down to what you've done with Jesus Christ. Have you placed personally your trust in him? But in saying that, Jesus has saved you not to go solo, but to be part of a community. Interestingly, all throughout the New Testament, it is assumed that once you become a Christian, you become part of his church. You will join a local church. That's why, look at the epistles, they're written to churches more so than people, individuals. You read uh, Hebrews 10, verse 23, and it says this, Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up being together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more you see the day approaching. See, even in the early church, people were finding excuses not to meet together. And it's interesting, the more disconnected you are from a church, a local church, the more removed you are, the more irregular you are, the weaker your faith is. Because just like you need people, that God has made you for others, God has saved you for others. And just like loneliness is bad for your physical health, disconnect from a local church is terrible for your spiritual health. Because notice what it says there in Hebrew sense, let us consider us how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. That we need to encourage one another. Because as a Christian, guaranteed, you'll be tempted to walk away, give it all up. But the more connected you are in a church, you'll have people there encouraging, don't give up, and reminding you of the eternal. If you're part of it, you'll be guaranteed you'll feel times deflated. You'll feel like, I'm a sinner. God really doesn't want me. I'm unlovable. But if you're surrounded by Christians on a week-in-week basis, they will remind you, God doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as forgiven and saved. There will be times when you excuse your sin away and think God approves of it. But if you're part of a church community, then you will rub shoulders with people who will challenge you, remind you of what God says in his word, and it'll be uncomfortable, but you will grow. Oh, will you grow. There's a saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a Christian community to raise a Christian. And the big dangers, there's a couple of dangers here for why you disconnect from church. One of them is travel. Now, I don't mean a holiday. I mean extended periods of traveling. Because there you're on your own. You're going solo. And there's no accountability. 
And many Christians have gone down that road and not connected with a local church and they've walked away. Another danger is busyness, whether it's work-related or hobbies, where you find these excuses and these excuses turn into habits. And your habit of focusing on the now, on your job, of the interests, rather than of meeting together with God's people, something that will last forever. Those of you who have children, the sport or the extracurricular activities you do come first above church. What you're doing there is teaching your children that church is an add-on. And please don't be surprised if in the future they too don't rock up to church because they've learned from you that it's not a priority. We naturally seek loneliness. In our sinful temptation, we naturally disconnect. And as a Christian, we still fill that pool. Saying, I don't need these, but I can do it on my own. But you can't. God has saved you not to do your Christian walk by yourself, but to regularly gather together. That these people, look at them. You need them. And they need you. And can I say, I know there's a number of people here who find coming to church particularly hard. Some of you have young kids. You haven't slept in 48 hours. One of them did a poo explosion on the way here. It was just traumatic. And yet you come. Some of you battle with anxiety, particularly social anxiety. And every time you step into the room, your heart starts pounding. Who am I going to sit next to? Who's going to talk? And yet you still come. Some of you are married to someone who's not a believer. And that pull to stay home is strong. And you say, I still need to go to church. Can I say how profoundly I encouraged I am by you? And the people in this room are encouraged by you. That though you may have an excuse, you choose not to use that excuse, but say, I need God's community. To join a bunch of people who have been saved by Jesus, that I I can come not because I have to, but because I want to and I need to. The church is not an afterthought of God's, but a perfect, true community centered around him was his plan from the very beginning. And it is our future. As it says in Revelation 21, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God.